Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Ryan Olahan. And Ryan has two titles. We're going to get into both of them, Ryan. Ryan is the managing director at Google uh, and oversees their business in the food, beverage, and restaurant business. But he is also the head janitor. I am certain that's a tongue-in-cheek title of what is widely regarded not only in the garden state but up and down the eastern seaboard as the best ice cream around seven scoops and sips so it is great to have you here ryan all right it's great to be here matt so ryan i want to start where we were just talking about which is uh boston and I know you have roots in New England uh, and a great sports tradition, but I find there's something special about people from that part of the country. There's a grounding and a almost a sanity and a balance to the thinking of people from New England. You don't see that from everywhere else. Talk about those Boston and New England roots and how that shaped you early on. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting you said that because you asked that because I, so growing up outside of Boston, my actually, my father's from Ireland, came from a big family. We didn't have a whole lot. And, um, and for many years, even my professional career, I actually would not talk about it because not that I was ashamed about it, but I didn't see it as a badge of honor being from Boston, not coming from a lot, really having to, you know, work my way through school and paying for school. And, um, and then it wasn't until I was, you know, good 15 years into my career that uh, I realized not only is it not something to be ashamed about, it was actually a badge of honor because I realized why I've done well in my career is not that I'm not particularly smart. I'm at best average smarts. But those, that upbringing actually has taught me a whole bunch of hunger and just the, uh, you know, like the scrappiness that you actually might see from now, I would say I, I would, I mean, sure others would argue it's not just Boston, but there is something about that upbringing, um, especially with an Irish, Irish family, you know, where we had to, um, you know, we had to work hard and that was expected. And so that hunger is something I think, to be honest, I think is something that's lacking. And, you know, I'd love to see a, a lot more of that in, in the career and something I work on really hard with my kids, trying to maintain that hunger, that scrappiness. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And did you work as a kid when you were in your teen years? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's my, um, yeah, I mean, I had, um, I, I had endless jobs starting and I tell the kids and sometimes I look back on, I think, wow, it's insane. Cause back then, you know, it's not that I'm that old, but you know, I grew up in the early eighties where uh, they didn't really have labor laws. And so I was doing a paper route. It started at eight years old, but I had a bike a mile from my house before seven every morning. And I look at my eight year olds now, you know, it was dark out and they had no leash laws there. And so dogs would be running around as an eight year old, like delivering papers. And I think, wow, I would never let my kid do that today for a million of reasons. But yeah, you know, growing up, that was, it was at a necessity. My father uh, was disabled and had to stop working at 41 years old. And our whole family, like it just, you know, like we had just had to pick up the slack. I had older brothers who did a lot more of that. But, you know, even as a kid, you know, I was a 10 year old buying my own, my clothes 
and my sneakers. And so it went from paper routes to delivering magazines to, you know, work in an ice cream shop. That's the funny thing is I did work in an ice cream shop for years and vowed I'd never do it again once I, <laughs> my last scoop when I was, you know, in college. But yeah, so I had many jobs that, you know, because I had to pay for life. I had to pay for my school lunches. I had to pay for college. And, um, and you know, and I'm actually very grateful for all that now because I feel like it's helped me a great deal in my career. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way and uh, we'll get to it, but we share a bit of ice cream history. And I attribute whatever modest degree success I've had a lot of it, I go back to those early jobs and internships and what it teaches you in terms of work ethic and dealing with people and, and getting the feeling of joy of earning your own money. Uh, totally agree. You know, we'll talk, I'm constantly, you know, we have 20, 25 employees, mostly some like um, adults, but mostly high school kids. And I'm constantly talking to them and say, you, have, you don't realize how much bigger this is than scooping ice cream. It's dealing with customer service and, and nice people, like unpleasant people dealing with money. And there's, there's, you know, they're juggling. There's a lot of things, a, you know, a 16 year old has to juggle when working at a store that is teaching them all sorts of life lessons. And um, in fact, I actually am looking at seven scoops. I, this uh, as, a, as a breeding ground. I mean, some of our best employees, I think, wow, these would be amazing employees at my team at Google. Right, so, right. Get your degree, and we'll and we'll talk once you finish. It's like you've created your own minor league farm system. Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. So you stay pretty much at home, going to school at Providence, uh, a great, great school, and a rival of the team I always rooted for growing up. Some great St. John's Providence basketball games uh, back yeah, in the day. And end up working at Hewitt in the consulting area. And that feels to me like a great first gig. Uh, yeah, you know what? It was looking back, I had, you know, I, I, I see today, like I see my daughter is getting ready to go to college. And, and I've been through it. I, and the amount of, we're able to give her a lot of direction on what to think about for school, how to play to her strengths, what schools will help her best in the career. Um, and then when she gets out, like opportunities, you know, because I have a big network and have lots of friends. And and I look back on when I went to college, you know, I, I actually went to Providence um, because my older brothers did and I got a scholarship. And, um, and then when I got out and I did very well in school. And so when I got out, I didn't really have any direction. And so I didn't have like parents saying, hey, have you thought about this or and um, and it was just me trying to, again, be scrappy and looking at companies. At the time, I remember Hewitt was paying $37,000 a year. And I thought that was really cool. They came to campus and they were paying more than others. So I really wanted to work at Hewitt. And, and it was consulting. You got to travel. And, um, and, and so, you know, I believe in life, it's about doing well, um, working hard. But sometimes, you know, there's a little luck, there's timing and other things involved. And so for some reason, I went into an interview, you know, I'm a 21 year old at the time. I had no experience. I never had an internship because I was working at golf courses to pay for college. And, and um, but someone there took a liking to me, gave me a job. And, you know, I'm very grateful 
because I look back at that job. I look at like when I started there, you know, fresh out of college and I had a boss, this guy, Charlie King, who um, at the time, you know, I, I just wanted to get ahead and just like do my best and show that I belonged to, you know, some, some kid from the wrong side of the tracks could make it at a, you know, a cool job like Hewitt. And, um, and Charlie said, you know, first day he said, Ryan, I want to meet every day. He was my manager. I said, sure, I'll meet it whenever you want. He says, how's 6.30 sound? And, you know, without blinking, I said, sure. You know, I, so for the next two years, every single day I was in 6.15 in the morning, never missed. I've made sure I was the first in, last to leave. And so where I might have lacked in like smart, being the smartest guy or having the Harvard degree, um, you know, they were like, okay, that guy, this guy's a, this guy will hustle for us. And so it really helped me in my career as I started progressing, you know, as a 22 year old and moving on. So I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for Hewitt. I'm very grateful for my first boss who some might say, wow, that guy was a hard nose, but he taught me awesome life lessons. And not only scrappy and work ethic, but early on your career seems, you know, sort of two skills that not everybody has and that's ability to develop business and ability to develop relationships and those seem to be early hallmarks of the ryan story yeah you know what i i remember going to a training session years ago and someone used the term radical empathy which i thought huh you know what some people actually are born with having empathy it's not like yes it's very good for in life and to be good and decent and to understand others and where they're coming from. But it's incredibly important in business. And I realized that having that skill and be able to understand whether the person that's sitting across from you, whether it be your client, your manager, your the CEO of the company, your wife, whoever that might be, being able to put yourself in their shoes is something because I, I have been fascinated thinking, how is like a, a dummy like me? How have I done better than I probably should have. And I look at, there's a few, and I would put one of those that just um, be able to um, understand what makes someone else tick. And, and that, which helps with relationships, what's help, you know, and, and as you know, like business is personal. Business is about understanding people and dealing with people. And so, you know, I've always joked, but I'm only half kidding. There's two people in the world I have to make, I make sure they're always happy. And that's Anne, my wife. And it's, and it's Adam, my, my current boss, whoever my boss is, make sure I, you know, like fully understand where they're coming from and understand how to work with them. Um, you know, because it's obviously helpful for many reasons. And I think you got it in the right order. And, and then Adam. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Smart, smart man. So at, Ryan, you're an outlier in one regard in particular, in that you've been at the same company for a long period of time. Um, one of the things that I never thought would be the case about myself is that I would have the same phone number and email address the longest amongst my peers. And we've been yeah. running advertising week. We started about three years before you joined Google. We started in 2004. And to me, there's a great comfort in that. And uh, you know, there are people who I know and people who you know in the business who have had three, four, five, six, seven gigs in the amount of time that you and I basically have been with the same entity. Let's talk about your journey to Google um, and how you got there, 
and those early days working in consumer packaged goods. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, so I'm actually about to celebrate my 15th year at Google. And I wouldn't say, I mean, it's Google and Google's amazing. You know, it's like, like I, I believe Google still is the number one place where people want to work and come out of college, grad school. And, and it was for me, you know, it was probably 17 years ago where I, you know, I, I saw Google was up and coming. It was well before it went public. And so I sent in a resume and, you know, but, you know, my resume is not particularly impressive and they sent a note back. Don't call us. We'll call you. And, but I had, you know, there was, I, 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 it did, was very high on my list. And so I thought, like, how could I get there? And so I was, I went from consulting, then I worked for Dreyfus, which got bought by Mellon, marriage with Bank of New York, did that for a while. And I moved into the startup world. So I went from, you know, for my first eight years of my career, I was, I was doing that. I was working at a startup. And when Google said, don't call us, don't call you, you don't have the experience. I just went onto Google and I Googled um, search engine marketing agencies. I knew nothing about it, knew nothing about the, the world, but I knew that was a, the experience I would need for Google. And so just like when I got a job at Hewitt, um, Reprise Media, I went in for an interview, said, listen, I, I know nothing about your world. I'm in startup world and I'll work really hard for you. And so they took a chance on me and they hired me, got me the experience I needed. Um, and I actually just worked there for one year. And I was desperately trying to understand the industry. So not only would I do my day job, but at night I would go to industry events. I would be like all over advertising week and doing like trying to just keep up with what was going on. And um, I'm at, I go to an industry event. I get in an elevator with this guy, Tom, just me and him. We're in New York city and I happen to be in a good mood. So I'm like, Hey, how you doing? I start talking to the guy just in literally an elevator ride. That elevator stops. He says, we're going to the same event. And when I get off the elevator, he keeps talking to me. I'm like, what's this guy's deal? Like, why is he talking to me? And because we talked for maybe 35 seconds on the way up. Um, and so then he came up to me after the event. He said, hey, Ryan, so I'm a, I work at Google. And would you ever, have you ever thought about working there? I was like, hey, funny you say that. Of course, I, of course I have. And um and the rest is, you know, two days later, he sent me an email. I went in at the time, I had to actually interview with 14 people. We since have narrowed, but 14 people, I had to give my SAT scores. You know, at, at the time, you remember back in the days of Google, you had to have a 3.5 GPA from college to even be considered. Fortunately, I did very well in school, so I had that. And again, it was, you know, and I think back, you know, I tell people all the time that you can do everything right. You can be the smartest person you can. And sometimes there's timing. I don't know why it was a just dumb luck that I met Tom in the elevator. Um, and if it wasn't for Tom in the elevator, maybe I could have ended up Googling another way, but you know, we don't know. But uh, so another, another person I'm very grateful for that he opened the door for me that otherwise would have been closed. It's a great, great story. Uh, so I happen to agree with your assessment of Google past, present and future on where you sit in the ecosystem as you know, best in class across so many, so many areas. But talk about the company that you joined because Google back almost 15 years ago was a little bit different than what the company is today in 2021. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, when I started, we were a search company. That's all we did. You know, it was just Google. We didn't, you know, like we didn't own YouTube. We didn't have Android. We didn't have, you know, right now we have eight products at over a billion users. We didn't have maps. And, um, and, and I came in as just a lowly junior sales guy. And, and this is something, you know, my team has heard a million times because I talk about that uh, many people come to Google, they have imposter syndrome. For one reason, and, and I certainly did. I thought, you know, I'm working with all these people with Harvard degrees and they're so fancy. And and I came in as a nobody. And I remember thinking, you know, like just trying to prove that I belonged. And this is at the time, you know, this was 15 years ago. Um, and they said, okay, your job is to call on retail companies and try to get them to advertise with Google, Google search, and that's it. And uh and I, I said, all right. And I, I thought there would be more structure. It was Google and it was still, we were post IPO, but it was still, it was pretty, still the wild west. And I've, I've shared this story many times that I had this imposter syndrome thinking everyone's better. And they were having a contest. They said it was like boiler room. If you've ever seen the movie where everyone had headsets, it was a group that was like a floor of like a hundred people. And they, everyone was making calls, trying to call up companies, get meetings. And they said, we're going to have a contest. And I think the winner would get $25 gift card to Starbucks. Um, we're going to have a contest. Who can make the most calls and get the most meetings? And so it was going to be from one to four in the afternoon. And so I thought, you know what? I just want to compete and show that I belong in the big leagues. And so I, you know, during that, those hours, I don't go to the bathroom. I don't, um, you know, I don't get up, I don't get a drink of water, and I'm just furiously calling, trying to get meetings. Contest ends three hours later. There's like 100 people in the contest. They say third prize, uh, you know, 34 calls, eight meetings. Second prize, 41 calls, 12 meetings. First prize, 112 calls and 27 meetings. And and I looked around and I thought, wait a second. You know what? I, I'm and it was just a, a reminder to me to say, I am well aware I have many weaknesses, but there's a few strengths. And one is I can make a lot of calls and I can get people to listen. And, and that's a strength. So don't, so play to your strengths, you know? And so on our team, we talk a lot about humble confidence. Without confidence, we're lost, but without humility, we're lost. And so it's that blend of understanding, like I'm well aware, like I'm, I try to stay humble and why I'd like mop the floors at seven scoops at the ice cream shop is to say like, I'm that I'm not better. It's like, I'm not too good to be mopping floors. Um, and I know where I came from. Um, but without that confidence as well to say, okay, so here's some things that we're good at play to your strengths. And, um, and that's actually just helped me. And, you know, and that was, that was 15 years ago. And ever since it's been, you know, we've, just kind of chugged along and slowly been moving up the the uh, career ladder, as they say. But I think you start to see a narrative here where you're talking about that eight-year-old kid. And I had a paper out also. I started, my first one was I delivered the penny saver, which is long gone. It was just a little, almost like a pamphlet of classified ads. Yeah, And yeah. then I had my first newspaper out after that, just a little bit older than you were. But that's a lot of hard work. I remember when my basket was full, it was heavy and I was a little guy. Uh, and that that combination of hustle, 
I love the term that you used earlier, radical empathy. Uh, you can really see where something's starting to come together, you know, and by the way, Providence is a damn good school. You know, I, I know you're surrounded by Ivy League colleagues, but there's a lot to be said for just great, great institutions that may not be in that Ivy League, but are fantastic places like Providence. Oh, for sure. In, in fact, I have looked, it was years ago, I was, so, so Google actually is very open and, it, you know, we, we recruit from everywhere and all, but I, I remember getting really upset. This is, goes way back because I really wanted to bring someone in to Google who, um, who on paper didn't have the background. They went to a, a you know, a, a, a school, it, it wouldn't be like a top tier school. And but on paper, you look at and say not impressive. But what I saw on paper is this was a person whose family came from Russia. They were, it had to learn the language, put themselves through school. You could see they worked a million jobs, did very well in school when English was a second language. And I said, this, do you see here what you don't see, what you're not reading here about how smart they are in like a Harvard degree. And by the way, I keep talking about Harvard. Like this is, Harvard's awesome. So I'm not like belittling anyone from Harvard at all. It's if my daughter could go to Harvard, I'd want that. But um, but I said, what you don't see is read between the lines here is to see, this is the type of person we want on our team. This is someone that's going to refuse to give up and like, you know, and try to get ahead. And like, for me, I always had a little chip on my shoulder. I always want, you know, I remember this growing up in a kid and I tell, I tell my kids all the time, I say, never, bring someone down, always bring them up. I said, I remember a kid, Dan, in fourth grade, we had some argument and he turns to me and said, well, at least I'm not poor. And I remember it like really upset at, at the time. I'm like, what is he talking about? I'm not poor, you know, cause I'm a kid. I don't know. Like, and I said, that was 40 years ago or something like, and I still remember that very well. And when I, and I think about it, actually there's a tinge of still being upset to this day. Don't ever be that kid. You bring people up, but that kid, while that upset me, he's always, that's also a little chip on my shoulder where I've always wanted to prove like, hey, I could actually, you know, if I keep working hard and doing the right thing and trying to be decent, like I could get ahead. And, um, you know, so I think actually was a little extra motivation. So I'm another person I'm actually grateful for. Fantastic stuff. There's also something very interesting and consistent about Google, which is a, which is from the outside looking in a culture that's unique and relatively healthy. I think it's very hard, especially as a company grows as much as you have. And we were there when, you know, when YouTube was first acquired in 2007. So the company, as you said, what it was to what it is now, there was no Android, you know, the, the, the maps on and on and on and on. Uh, but there seems to be a consistency of culture that is unique to your company. People stay with you. And what is a great badge of success that they go on from Google and accomplish great things elsewhere in some cases. Talk about the evolution of that culture. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's a, a big reason why I'm here, why I love Google and why, uh, to be honest, I have, um, you know, and over the years, I've been offered a lot of jobs and a lot of really cool jobs that I, I 
like just people reaching out to me. Never had an interest because I love Google, because I love the people and the culture. And I've worked elsewhere. So some, some you know, people on our team, they've only worked at Google and they don't realize they might jump and go somewhere else. And it's amazing how many of them will call, hey, but you know, a year later, hey, just check in there, roll open. I wouldn't mind coming back. I would say that, you know, I've been with Google for so long that I, I was there when we were small and now we're huge. And so, and you see in most companies where they lose that, you know, that startup mentality. Um, I think because, you know, it, like I oversee one business unit and what I've, I've noticed across the teams is that we're all, you know, like I'm interviewing anyone. So I actually try to make sure I, everyone before they come to our team, I, I personally just have a quick conversation with, and I'm looking for three quick things. I'm seeing they, if they're smart, if they're hungry, everything we we're just talking about, and if they're just good and decent, want to make the world better. And, you know, and that's the sort of person you want to work with. Those to me are like three things that you can't teach. You either have them or you don't. And not that you have to be a genius, but you have to be smart enough. Um, you have to be hungry. And, um, you know, and, and so on our team, you know, like I, I would look at like, you know, I kind of look at my business as I'm run my own startup, a big, very big startup. And, and yes, I have bosses and we, you know, we have the broader Google, but they empower, you know, we have a culture that empowers the teams. I have a lot of managers under me who I don't, I stay out of their business. They are, they're very good. They know what they're doing and they run their business. And you see it all come at the, you know, I was saying before, business is personal. It's about people. I actually find business to be very simple. I've always done well in my career uh, at Google, at Seven Scoots, because I'm obsessed with just having great people. Focus on the people, look for people who are great, never tolerate media, mediocrity, and, um, and everything else follows. So I'd say that to this day, you still have that at Google where you just have good, decent people who want to do the right thing, who like understand there's a bigger mission. You know, for years I worked in Google Healthcare and I thought, what an amazing place to be. Not only are, yes, we like make our, like the healthcare industry, we can make them lots of money. Google makes lots of money, but we're also funding things like Calico and Verily and all these different groups we have in Alphabet that are literally trying to transform and change the world for the better. And, and we're part of that. So, you know, when we're our driverless cars, you think of all the good that something like driverless cars is going to bring to our world. You know, for all the, the over a million people, all the people who die in car accidents, pollution, all these things that are actually avoidable when we automate the system. So, and that's all done because of like the work that our teams are doing and it allows us to, to fund some of that other, the other things going on. So I do think where you see at Google, people understand that they're a part of something bigger than themselves, which is why, you know, at least for, especially across Google, I see it in our team, why I think it, you know, inspires people to, to want to stay here and want to, you know, do something bigger. Yeah, and you used the word earlier, but I've noticed this dealing with a lot of your senior people over a long period of time. We've been very lucky that Google has been a big, big partner of ours almost since the beginning. There is tremendous success, but there's that underlying 
characteristic, a word you used, humble. And I have found that to be very true from top to bottom. Yeah, I would, I would, I agree. I mean, I, I just look at going uh, all my bosses over the years. You know, it starts from the top. You look at like Sundar. I mean, I think he's the definition of humility, a, a guy who makes lots of money and is one of the most powerful CEOs in the world. Um, and, and just down the line across the board, you look at Susan who runs YouTube and, and the list goes on. So I do think culture, it starts from the top, but also culture is, it can't only be at the top. So it's at the bottom, it's, you know, it's in the middle and everyone, we, so everyone's part of this and you would see, and you know, and, and sometimes we mess up, not everyone's perfect. And so, um, but when you have just good, like the stuff sorts itself out and I've, you know, why I been here a long time and why I have no intention of going elsewhere. It's just because I've seen that and I've seen, I've been on the other side of the fence where I've also worked with smart people who might not have the same culture or they might not have the humility. There might, and other things that like seep into a, a culture, which makes, you know, it not the best place to work. Yeah, no, very well said. So healthcare has never been more in the news than it has the last 18 some odd months. And you had about seven years, give or take, in the middle of the healthcare world. Give us your sense on uh, that intersection of technology and healthcare and uh, perspective and things that you've observed, how we've done better or poorly the last year and a half or so uh, as we've all been living through, you know, something that none of us could have imagined. Yeah. Well, I, you know what, I, what's interesting, I don't have a healthcare background at all. In fact, and when I, I took over as I was in CPG and they asked if I would come over uh, and work in health and um, to the outsider. And to be honest, in, including myself, I thought, really, are you sure? Like, why would you want someone like me? Wouldn't you want someone with experience and and what actually they're looking for is a different perspective, an outsider's perspective. And I think the one perspective that the value that I brought to our teams and hopefully to the industry is that, um, you know, there's there's a saying, a paraphrase, a, a Michelangelo quote is, the greatest danger is not that we aim too high and miss, but that we aim too low and hit. And I think back to, you know, that was nine years ago now. And nine years ago, you had an industry that I think was very risk averse. You know, they were stuck in their ways. They were doing this, some things, they were doing this, making the same decisions today that they were making 30 years ago. And so just coming in and saying, hey, listen, have we thought about doing this differently? Have we thought about raising the bar? And yes, I know we're restricted and regulated and there's all sorts of other issues, but are there, um, you know, can we think bigger? Can we go faster? Can, and, um, and it was amazing. I mean, we had a good run and we've seen like the healthcare and pharma has come a very, very long way in so many ways. Um, and then of course, you know, you've seen what has happened over with COVID. We have the, the technology and what machine learning and so many of uh, um, the tools that just simply weren't available 10 years ago it's progressed us. I just, I can't even imagine where we would be as in our world if 
um, if COVID hit 10 years ago. We just simply were not equipped to move as quickly as we are today. And so, um, you know, and, and so where we've gone in the last 10 years, like we'll see, and we're just accelerating that much faster with artificial intelligence, machine learning. We're seeing like just the progress that is being made is truly remarkable. And, um, but of course, we, no matter how fast we're moving, we have to move faster, right? There's just, there's a lot to be, there's a long ways to go. Yeah, the, the problem, the problem is move quickly also. So, so 2019, big year in two ways. You become the MD, the food and beverage and restaurant part of Google's business. Uh, and uh, a little place called Seven Scoops and Sips is launched. Yeah. Let's talk about either and the journey, and I will reveal our shared ice cream history when we get to that. But let's take it any way you want to go, Ryan. Yeah. Well, why don't you know what? Well, Seven Scoops actually came first, and it was something that, no, to be honest, my wife. So I, you know, I, um, I don't know if I mentioned, but Seven Scoops is named after we actually have seven children. <laughs> so we, there's a lot going on in our life between Google, the ice cream shop, and lots of kids. And, um, but for literally 10 years now, my wife has always been saying she wanted to open up a coffee shop. And I would say, and listen, coffee shops, it's like a lot of work. You have to get up early. It's hard to make money. And she says, I don't, Ryan, I don't want to make money. I just want a cute place where people can go. And like a place for the community. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I mean, that sounds nice, but like we just simply weren't in a state in life where we could do something like that. And then uh, fast forward a few years, this was probably three or four years ago, I took the kids out for ice cream. And we're at this ice cream shop and it's, it's actually dirty. And you know, a lot of ice cream shops, by the way, aren't very clean. <laughs> so it's, it's dirty the staff was simply unfriendly. They just were, they were either indifferent or worse. And, and the ice cream was so expensive. You know, I have lots of kids. It cost me a fortune. And then there's, and I look around, there's a line out the door. And I turned to Anne, I said, wait, this is it. Coffee and ice cream. If we, and everything that's upsetting us about this place right now, it'll be the cleanest store in the world. <laughs> Everyone will be, wildly friendly at all times, no matter what. Uh, we'll make the ice cream inexpensive. So whether rich or poor, you should be able to bring your kids for ice cream. It should not be a luxury. Uh, growing up, I can count on one hand when we go for ice cream. It just wasn't an option. And um, and that like, and then we started moving from there. So you fast forward, like we opened up uh, over it's two and a half years ago now. And um, it not like I don't have any neither and we have no background we had no idea what we were doing but you know it's just like running a business we like figure it out as we went I'd like to think you know we laugh at the team that there's two types of people in the world there's thinkers and doers I happen to be a doer not much of a thinker but to do it you know like we got it done and we like figure it out and we pivot when need to and um and seven scoops has been um you know, it's, it's been amazing. Like, sure, it's a lot of work, but everything, the reason why we started, so we have a place for the community. We give the, we try to give everything we make to good causes in the areas. We employ lots of people who um, could use some extra money besides, you know, and all the high school kids. 
we employ a bunch of people with Down syndrome and special needs. And, you know, and so there's just a lot of good that comes, um, comes from there. And, you know, I, I tell people all the time, if you lead, just try to do good. And the beauty is when you do good, you can do well as well. And so we have that model and the place. It, and so Seven Scoops is actually the highest rated ice cream shop in New Jersey. So, um, and we try to stay, keep it that way, but that's purely because, you know, we like focus on when people come in, you know, we have a model. If you look at our, our Instagram account, it's seven scoops NJ. And um, so on the walls, you know, there's a, our, our tagline is uh, many flavors, one community. So no matter who you are, what you are, like everyone's welcome. And, and there's that just a good positive vibe. You know, when you go out for ice cream, we just want people to feel better when they leave than when they came in, you know, and that's a, it's a, and the model's working. So what a, what a great story. So let's stay here for a second because it's so interesting. I, I mentioned that uh, uh, we share some history. One of my uh, most memorable jobs as a kid was I had a Chipwich cart in Manhattan for a summer and sold ice cream on the streets of Manhattan. And uh, the Chipwich, sadly, the business was bungled and the product isn't really around anymore, at least that brand. But um, I absolutely loved it. And for me, working on the streets of Manhattan was an Aberdeen proving ground. Now, you're starting something brand new. You're not selling a product that already exists. Talk about that process early on, something neither you nor Anne knew anything about, developing your own product from scratch and not only developing a product that would be good, but developing one that's great. Well, you know what, it's, um, you know, it's, so what's interesting is when, so when my kids ask me a question that I feel like they should know the answer to, I'll just look at them. I'm just looking at them, but I don't respond. And I do that to our employees at work as well, because a lot, and, and I'm doing that. And then they're looking at me funny and they're like, oh, you're, you want me to figure this out. And I'm like, yes figure out because you're going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. I just kind of figure it out. And so you should start doing that for yourself. And, and that's like seven scoops. Like we didn't know, we genuinely didn't know. All we knew is we had a vision of having a place where everyone can come and feel good. And that's it. And the rest, like we're not really an ice cream shop. It's a place for people to hang out now with the ice cream. So we actually don't make our ice cream. We actually, um, we, it's Hershey's ice cream. We picked Hershey's ice cream because we went to 45 ice cream shops and we found the ice cream we thought was the best. Hershey's is actually very expensive. I make barely a penny off ice cream because it's expensive to buy it, but it's excellent ice cream and people love the ice cream. We did the same. We do acai bowls. So we went around to every acai shop and we found one that we loved, the acai, and we use that. The coffee, we actually work with an organization, Me to We, where it's um, all the coffee goes to help um, uh, uh, people who are struggling one way or another in Kenya and Ecuador. And so, um, and, and so we, we got the best of the stuff that tastes good, but also there's something behind it. And, and so we just tried to figure this out as we got, went. And, you know, and we, and not everything was perfect. You know, like one example of being a doer and not a thinker is literally the day we opened. The store is beautiful. Hopefully you can get out and see it. It's like a beautiful store. So we made sure it was nice and 
and it had all the bells and whistles. And so people loved it. And the very first day, grand opening, someone said, hey, can I get a hot fudge sundae? And I turned to Ann and I, was, I said, oh wait, we don't have a hot fudge machine. <laughs> we literally opened an ice cream shop and we didn't have a hot fudge machine. It was back order and we forgot to even set it up the first day. So we didn't come for like two days later. And like, who does that? And you would think, and, but because going back to like, you know, we're in the people business, like people are understanding. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. We don't have our machine. And I'm so sorry. Like, can we get you something else? And they're like, no, no, that's cool. When you're, it's never what you say, it's how you say it. And so when you're good to people, they're like, they're very understanding. And, um, and so I, I think about that hot fudge machine all the time because, you know, that could have slowed us down and, um, you know, we've made mistakes along the way. Now we figured out now, and we're like pros. We like, we know exactly what to, how much to buy, when to buy it. And, and, uh, and it's just through trial and error. We just kind of figured it out as we went. What a great story. So let's, let's turn back to your full-time day job. The food, beverage and restaurant sector is in the midst of uh, incredible transformation and transition. And from a technology vantage point, Google is helping to fuel a lot of that and working as a great partner across the sector. Uh, we've never seen such excitement, I think, in the sector. And you've also got a lot of folks who are challenged, especially small and medium-sized businesses. Talk about what you're doing there, uh, running the F&B and restaurant vertical at Google. And that's got to be really interesting, really exciting, and I'm sure at times really challenging. Yeah, you know, it's been, we've seen, because of COVID, I, you know, it's now become a cliche, but the, the saying, like, we've, we've transformed uh, 10 years in 10 months at necessity. And so, um, and the thing is, I actually look at what's going on in this industry today across food, beverage, and restaurants, it's all the same. It's like a train coming in the night. You know, if you see you're on a train platform, you can see the lights coming. You hear the horns blaring. But for years, you have different types of people. Some see it. And for one reason or another, they're not reacting. They're like, well, I don't know. Maybe the train will slow down. Maybe. And so uh, some are prepared to get on that train and a lot aren't. And the thing is, when COVID hit, it accelerated everything. There were those that saw it and realized they had to pivot quickly. There were others that didn't pivot. And unfortunately, like weren't able to survive. And there's and others who have are somewhere in the middle. Um, I would say that what we've seen for both big and small um, companies is it's forced them to embrace technology, embrace and things that where they could get by. You know, you take for example. Um, in this industry, everyone has been on. You know, they spend billions of dollars on TV. And forever, we know you run on your commercials on TV. People are going to buy, go into your restaurants and buy, and buy your food. Um, until you look at what has happened now, how how disruption has has changed everything. In disruption, you see, um, you know, you look at all the stats on TV. Like one stat I found fascinating is you take like the auto industry. You know, in the auto industry, you could spend a million dollars on TV or fifty million dollars. And it doesn't matter, you will never reach more than 53 or 54% of your customers. Meaning 
almost 50% of them do not watch TV anymore. And so we still spend billions of dollars, even though the people we're trying to hit have turned off their TV. They've gone completely digital. They're on YouTube and Hulu and others. You know, some of those stats, you know, and we all understand that, I think, intuitively. But when you bring it home, I was looking at some stats where I found amazing. Like, you take, you know, we've all seen, like, the Grammys and all the awards ceremonies, how the, the numbers are just way down, what people just simply aren't watching anymore. I looked at um, Saturday Night Live. And it was showing Elon, remember last year, Elon Musk, it was like their highest rated show of the entire year. It received 7 million viewers. The average viewer was 61 years old. But that within the next 24 hours or 48 hours, 48 million people watched that the Saturday Night Live on YouTube. And the average age was uh, less than 30. And so you can go through, you know, like the Grammys had Dua Lipa, like, you know, only like they had record low numbers and they would have 6X, 7X the amount of people who would go online to watch it. And so we look at this and we see the transformation has happened. To me, that's a train that's coming in the night. When you see that coming and we're still saying, okay, let's uh, still buy lots of TV and let's still do things that we've been doing the last 50 years and it's worked very well for us. The ones that haven't figured out they have to pivot are the ones that either are in big trouble or are still, you know, struggling. Um, the good news is we've seen not only in, in CPG and restaurants, but across the board, we've seen this massive transformation where people are moving um, 10x faster than they used to. They're, um, they're embracing automation. They're embracing machine learning. They're understanding that in a privacy safe world, uh, you know, you have to, things have to get more personal. You need to rely on first party data and understanding your customers better. And so you're seeing this, this on all these things, yes, were always important, but you could still actually run a good business before without focusing that much on it. But now the world is transformed without doing all this, um, these new things, um, you'd be lost. So, um, so I'm very hopeful. I mean, we've seen, we've come a long way. We still have a ways to go, but I, you know, I've seen, there's just so many examples of restaurants, food companies, CPG companies who are do, actually doing pretty transformative things and, and have pivoted pretty quickly. Well, it, it's been, you know, certainly an interesting, you know, period to say the least. And you can really see that those industries and key players within those industries that are embracing the landscape as it is now versus how it used to be are having a much better opportunity to be successful. Yeah, that's for sure. Great. All right. Well, Ryan, this was an absolute joy uh, to talk to you. I, I feel like we could hang out over a beer for hours. So it's funny. The first time we're chatting, it's you know more official, but yeah, this is great. <laughs>